is where it all began. The story of Candyman. Local character, he walk around handing out candy to the neighborhood kids. One day, a couple of kids get razor blades in their candy. Police come around. That's when I saw the true face of fear. Get on your knees. Hands, hands, hands. They beat him, tortured him, killed him right there on the spot. A couple weeks later, more razor blades and more candy. He'd been innocent. So he's real? Candyman ain't a he. Candyman's the whole damn hive. Hello and welcome to the Final Ghost Podcast. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Ghost Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. Usually we take a theme of horror film history and explore it in depth through a series of deep dive episodes. But we're in the middle of a hiatus right now, so currently we're doing bonus episodes, mini-series. We've just done one on Censor did one on Promising Young Women, and we also love to cover new films or series that we really want to talk about. And there has been so much great horror stuff coming out this summer. Today's bonus episode is all about Candyman, probably the most eagerly anticipated horror film of the year. Nia DaCosta co-written Directed by Nia DaCosta and co-written by DaCosta, Jordan Peele, and Wynne Rosenfeld, it's both a direct sequel and a reimagining of the 1992 cult horror film of the same name. This Candyman sees a struggling painter called Anthony McCoy move into the now gentrified Cabrini Green area of Chicago with his gallery owner girlfriend. He becomes obsessed with the legend of the boogeyman known as the Candyman, and as he uses the legend to inspire his art, this obsession leads to a new wave of violence. I'm joined in this episode by film critic Dr. Kelly Weston to deep dive into Nia DaCosta's Candyman and its connections to the film from 1992. The first part of the episode will be our overall thoughts on the film and a bit of conversation about the Bernard Rose 90s film, but in case you need convincing to seek out and watch Candyman. There is absolutely no spoilers. I will leave a timestamp in the show notes and there will also be a clean break between the sections if you do not want to hear any spoilers about the new Candyman. In the second part of the episode, we go deep into spoilerific territory, but you will be duly warned. If you enjoy this episode, please do take a minute of your day to leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help a lot. And we will be announcing our next season next week, so do stay tuned for that. But for now, please enjoy our deep dive review of Nia DaCosta's Candyman. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Kelly Weston. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for mentioning that. I, I did pass. It's very exciting. This is my first outing as a as a doctor. It is extremely exciting. I'm <laughs> congratulations. I'm so Thank happy you. for you. <laughs> 
Uh, for any listeners out there, Anna has listened to me whine for four years about my thesis. <laughs> and now we're done. So we're both celebrating. <laughs> we're both celebrating the end. <laughs> You're done. You're officially a doctor, and I will use every single opportunity I can to remind people of Dr. Kelly Weston's doctorate. <laughs> Thank you. I hope my words <laughs> have more weight. Um, that you know, now that I'm saying them as a doctor, they are unimpeachable. You can't argue with me. Like my opinion is law, basically. Well, exactly. Exactly <laughs> correct. Um, and I couldn't think of anyone better to talk about Nia DaCosta's Candyman with me. So thank you so much for giving up a little bit of your time. Thank you for having me. I mean, you're obscuring the fact that I begged to be on. But thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I was giving you an out, Kelly, but okay. <laughs> I want to be fully transparent in my new era as a doctor. I want to be... <laughs> very upfront that I also beg to be on. <laughs> so before we dig into the new Candyman, uh, probably arguably one of the most anticipated horror films of the year, let's talk very briefly about the original. So what is your relationship with the 1992 Candyman? So that film is actually hugely formative for me. It's like, you know, when I was a kid, I think it is one of the earliest films I remember watching. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, I watched it in a communal space. I'm thinking about, you know, last year when they revealed that they would have to postpone it, that, you know, one of the reasons given was that Nia DaCosta and co were very adamant that this film be watched in a cinema and watched as a group. And, you know, we'll get into those sort of um, collective uh themes that are sort of running throughout the film but yeah i watched it with my cousins my little cousins and their older sisters were watching it and they were kind of you know they were teenagers and so they were like i don't think you should watch this i think you'll probably be scared and we didn't listen and we were scared and we spent the night <laughs> extremely you know we woke up the next morning i don't even think we like really went to sleep it was a very like fraught evening and we all sort of like were so afraid to go to the bathroom the night before that like in the morning in the light of day we were sort of like scrambling to get in there um but yeah i think um you know, my my cinema education was very much, weirdly enough, or maybe not so weirdly, um, informed by me watching Disney films and horror films. Those two genres have much more in common than I think you <laughs> would think at the outset. But, you know, this was part of my... Um, my, I suppose my initiation into cinema, I, I watched so many horror films like this. And Candyman was like, was pretty significant i think because it was probably one of the few that had a black protagonist and uh, or not protagonist we should say but you know black people were visible on screen black people were supposedly centered in the narrative we will maybe talk more about how you know certain problematic position um or how you know the different ways that i think that that film for as rich and as fascinating as it is, sometimes falls into racist tropes. Um, but yeah, I think it was probably really um, it, it in you know it was such an enduring film um, because yeah, like I it, that I was even then you know even as a kid I wasn't really used to seeing black people on screen in that way. 
And the legacy of it, I mean, just the the imagery, we're not going to talk about the very strange sequels that followed the original yeah. 90s Candyman. Best to leave them be, yeah. but... <laughs> But just the sheer imagery and the eeriness of it, especially coming at a time where kind of this renaissance of the slasher film was about to happen um, with Scream and all the subsequent kind of very teen-focused horror slashers that were mm. that were surfacing around the 90s. This, even now, and I rewatched it again maybe a month or two ago, it still feels incredibly creepy, eerie, and almost romantic i mean i know the kind of yeah. a big part of it is the this this romantic urban legend um with uh, with the man who would become Candyman, and in a way also this ethereal um potential romance that he has with with helen who's played by virginia matson in the film that's kind of not a will they won't they but it's it's alluded to um quite quite intensely but it's still has such strong imagery and part of that is tony todd as Candyman. Yeah. all the imagery of the bees the sound of the bees just the swarming of the bees as well both on his face and kind of emanating from him as this ghostly figure all of that kind of i think has permeated horror film culture even if sometimes people don't really know that it's coming from this particular film because it kind of sits by itself in mm. this in this pocket of time where it doesn't quite necessarily fit into what was the trendy type of horror at the time. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, Tony Todd's performance, I want, I think he is on record as saying this, but certainly a lot of people have picked up, a lot of critics over the years have picked up how inspired his performances by William Marshall um, as Blackula. Um, mm -hmm. And so interestingly enough, I think that Candyman itself sits in like a really fascinating um lineage of of black horror black horror in general really um part of what is going on in that original film is you know helen is sort of situating herself in a black oral tradition or she's sort of seeking to articulate it for the academy this is like a very you know problematic but very historically accurate <laughs> tradition um and there is all of this like you know you were talking about the imagery i always think of that moment where she's sort of climbing through the tunnels or whatever and mm -hmm. she sort of exits through the graffitied um image of his mouth sort of like yes. screaming and it's just like it's giving me chills just thinking about I watched it a few days ago. I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is like it it it's so memorable." Um and I think that it does have, you know, despite all of the issues that I will probably get into as we continue this conversation, that it ends up being still this like really fascinating portrait of of, you know, um black collective storytelling, really folklore, right? Like this is the way that Black communities, the only available way really for, for a time, for generations, that Black communities could preserve their history um, was by telling stories. Um, and so it's interesting that, you know, in her, in her efforts to sort of archive uh, this, you know, urban legends is what she's researching. Um, but what she's really doing is sort of documenting or trying to archive Black history. And so naturally, she would run into a figure who embodies, you know, this extremely rampant, prevalent, um, you know, kind of, of death, this specific sort of racialized, even very gendered um, 
death because, you know, historically black men were executed, were lynched for, you know, merely the suspicion of desiring um, black women, not sorry, black, not black women, white women. Um, And so you have this character who is so, you know, in so many ways, like really grotesque, but also really sensual and sort of irresistible and really charming. And um, it is like such a, I think, really um, distinct way of, 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 you know, for the film and, and at this time, because I think the film came out like 1992, um, yeah. but just a really, just a really interesting way of thinking about black legacy and the legacy of black horror and how much black horror was not, you know, fake. It was not, you know, they, these were not made up stories. These are, you know, these are histories. Um, and uh, yeah, I think within that equation, you know, I'm talking about like, you know, the very fraught legacy that, um, you know, American history has with um, interracial relationships, specifically between black men and white women. But within that equation, black women often get lost, you know, in the ways that black women themselves are are subject to violence. And so her best friend, as played by Casey Lemons, who a personal favorite of mine, a hero of mine, she's a queen. I encourage everybody to seek out Ease Bayou. I don't know if I've ever, I mean, obviously in my personal life, I talk about this film all the time, but I don't know if I'm on record on your podcast saying Ease Bayou I'm is pretty the best. Sh- I'm pretty sure we have spoken about Ease Bayou when we spoke about Skeleton Key yeah, and absolutely seconded Ease Bayou yes. is an incredible incredible gothic horror directed by Casey Lemons and it's an incredible film but I'd be like if we were ever to talk about it on this podcast you know it has I think really interesting connections to her role as the sort of quintessential black best friend in Candyman and Mm -hmm. also in Silence of the Lambs which she's in literally I think the year before right like 1991 the Silence of the Lambs but yeah so she has this like sort of one-two punch where she sort of Mm. cements herself on screen as this kind of you know horror cult figure um but then would also go on to sort of direct a film that I think is quite noticeably about black women (laughs) and and, uh does not is is quite you know about how black women themselves are sort of tied to black patriarchy and and that features no white characters at all but you know within within Candyman, the the original film you know she is sort of there to be pressed into service for helen a lot of times like you know she's this Mm -hmm. alternate like ultimately like a mother figure and a best friend and um she ends up, you know, spoiler alert, this film has been out for 20 years. So, but, you know, she ends up being sacrificed for, you know, mm. um, the plot basically to sort of get Helen closer to Candyman himself. So it's a, it's a, it's a film that obviously has, it has a, just a, it has a complex legacy. I mean, most things do, but, um, yeah, it also managed at the same time to be, I think, a hugely significant text mm. if we're thinking about black horror but you know we have to say like it's directed by bernard rose who is a british man an english director um and based on a short story uh, the forbidden that is set originally in liverpool in a liverpool it is yeah state. written by clive barker who's also yes. of english origin 
Yes. Um, Seek out Hellraiser for the girl. (laughs) (laughs) He has also Barker that is has gone on record basically saying that um he he gives kind of full credit to Bernard Rose for shifting the story to Chicago to centering Mm -hmm. it on Cabrini Green to really um centering it in the in the black community there as well as opposed to um Liverpool or the Liverpool slums where the original story is based and a lot of the imagery of Candyman himself comes from is kind of original to the film but we might do a whole nother thing about the 1992 Candyman but you you're correct like this has a very important legacy in horror history for many many reasons but that kind of ties into the expectation that this film was carrying on itself because it's there's been this very annoying um trend of erasing Nia Costa's name when talking about the film even before it started even before it was slated to come out even before the first yeah. imagery or the first trailers were coming out because of uh, Jordan Peele and because of Monkey Paw Jordan Peele produced it and co-wrote it obviously mm-hmm. it's a much bigger name but I wanted to ask you kind of can you talk a little bit about the intense expectation and the kind of weird trajectory of this film from when it was first announced and and Nia became attached to it to it finally kind of coming out and people being able to see it well yeah I mean she's such an interesting director I don't know how many people or if you have seen the film I think it's called Little Woods yeah with Tessa Thompson I think yeah Yeah, with Tessa Thompson and Lily James and uh it's a really interesting film they play sisters and um I think it's set in Canada but it's a it's a it's a wonderful little film I mean like it's quite it very much reminds me of like you know the Sundance films from like you know the naughties that would immediately secure a white male director as someone to watch and she did not necessarily I mean I think she did she did get like a lot of acclaim for it and then obviously she secured Candyman but I do think that and also now we should say she's also going to be you know Disney has sucked her up so she is going to be directing Captain Marvel 2 um so congratulations to her secure the bag but good for her I, yeah that's all i can say about that but um i do think that you know she has had a really interesting as you say like you know response where she is quite i think she is acclaimed within the industry and i think deservedly so like her film is we're going to talk about this film this is this film is good little woods is good um but i i you know this just my speculation, I should say, is that this goes back a little bit to what I was just saying about the way that Black women are often sidelined. So Jordan Peele himself is a, a very valid, you know, rightful, I think, at this point, icon of new horror cinema, right? Like, totally. get out, really change the game. Um, totally. Us is a wonderful film. I know people tend to prefer Get Out. I prefer Us. I think it's really rich and and meaningful. Like, he's good at his job, is basically what I'm saying. Mm. However, I guess because, you know, he is obviously the bigger name, um, it's easy to sort of call this Jordan Peele's Candyman. But it's not his film. And I think there, there are certain, you know, as we go into this, like, there are certain choices that I feel like are clearly, like, I think distinguish her um, as, you know, a a filmmaker. Um, 
and I think I'm writing a review as, as we speak for um, another publication. And um, I make sure quite often to say DaCosta's candy, man, for just that purpose, because it is at a certain point, it's getting really, really irritating um, mm-hmm. within, you know, the two years that it's taken for this film to come out, the way that people have continually erased her. Um, and, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's one of those things that feels really frustrating, right? Because like we're saying, like, is it because she's not a big name or is it simply because it's like, she's a black woman? So I, it, it, to me, I think it's just, it's just, it's both, right? Those two things actually mm-hmm. inform each other. So, um, yeah. And it's, it's really, it's really interesting how the, she's not a big name, or someone's not a big name isn't a problem until that person is a woman or specifically a black woman or a woman of color. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, will this, I mean, I'll be interested to see, you know, once this film has been received, once, you know, people are going to see it, whether or not that changes, because she does have this, you know, huge Marvel project coming up. I won't use this time to speak about how I feel about that. <laughs> what I will say is like, you know, I think it's worth it to, to, um, you know, really understand like how, j- j- just like sort of like the mechanics of, of how people really respond to new directors, because I just don't, th- I, mm. I, I don't think that this is the same way that you know somebody like for instance um who is the director of midsummer because i'm so bad at oh ari arthur yeah that he you know immediately upon like you know his 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 name began began to be known right like i don't know it it just doesn't sit right with me is uh is what i have to say (laughs) about that but oh um it's yeah doesn't sit right with me either and it's in very noticeable um it was very noticeable how horror outlets like supposedly specialized publications continuously made the quote-unquote mistake of calling it jordan peele's Candyman, and i know that's part of how things get um traction and it's seo and it's clickbait and all that shit but Mm -hmm. it's also the media's responsibility i think to give power to those names especially not not just get it right that's one thing but then also like you create those names you create the new jordan peels you create the new rdr stars so you have the power to make nia DaCosta's name go hand in hand with her film and it should be that and when it's like so continuous of course of course it's like it sends a terrible message and of course it's like are you are you just dumb or are you doing this on purpose yeah and i I think like yeah you're absolutely right like in in part it's like you know clickbait or whatever but Mm. you have a responsibility to sort of you know to to like you know get this right like as you're saying and also to you know make sure that to give credit where credit is due because jordan peele has not directed this film he's Mm -hmm. you know he's a co-writer he's a producer i you know this film is very yeah i mean we'll talk about it as as, you know as we go forward but yeah they're they're like really interesting i think stylistic choices that Mm. um are i think are very clearly (laughs) part of a a particular vision that she has and it's not anything like you know what jordan peele is is trying to do Mm. um but yeah So let's dig into Candyman itself. So to set the film up for anyone who's not seen it yet, I mean, this is coming out in the UK today on Friday. Um, So we 
our protagonist for this film is Anthony McCoy, who is an artist. He's played by Yaya Abdul-Mateen II. A man. Finally. <laughs> a man. Finally being given a leading role. Been waiting for this for fucking years. Same. Give the man a leading role. I mean, same. Um, yes. <laughs> And his girlfriend, who's a successful gallery owner and art curator, Brianna, who's played by Tiona Paris, and they are living in the very, very bougified Cabrini Green, mm-hmm. which is an important fact because that's also where the original Candyman is said. Gentrification um, is a big theme in the in both the films, and here it's bougified in a very millennial way. They are successful. They work in the art industry. Um, they are beautiful people. They're seemingly on the rise, and um, they are well, enjoying their success. Except um, Anthony is a little bit, perhaps, stilted in his career and in his art. So, what do you make of the setup of the premise of this Candyman and how it? updates perhaps Cabrini Green and the setting of the the horror of gentrification and I know that's just one of the many layers of the film and we'll rip it apart as we go along (laughs) yeah I mean I think it's interesting right because part of what you know what we were talking about early about some of the missteps missteps of the original Candyman it's clear that you know Nia DaCosta and her fellow screenwriters as well Peel and and also Wynne Rosenfield who I think also wrote or maybe produced Black Klansman um but he you know they're they're taking like clear strides to sort of correct a lot of those earlier issues so when you make your horror film about gentrification and you sort of populate it with an all you know almost entirely black black cast all of the principal characters are black um you then also i think begin to sort of shift not quite the message but you know certain themes that you're getting at so at this point it's not a you know like what i would say helen is doing is sort of co-opting or you know perhaps whitewashing black history you now have black characters who are maybe displaced from their history they are a little estranged from it and so they themselves are kind of you know in a position to um investigate themselves and and to really return home this is a theme that i love by the way i love when this happens I love when, you know, there are certain themes. This is part of, um, you know, this isn't necessarily what was happening in something like um, um, Atlantics, but it, that's a very much like a film about duality and about voyage and about, you know, being, um, you know, about rupture, really. Um, this is also like a very significant theme specifically for um, Black communities in America, really Black, you're all diasporic communities, truly. but. Um, you know, part of what was happening in the original Candyman is this, you know, like we were saying, like you're thinking about oral histories, you're thinking about folklore and how to preserve your history when you have been cut off from it. And so that is what is happening here. There is a twist we will talk about later, but (laughs) there, you know, mainly what is being set up here is for these characters to begin to um, reacquaint themselves with their origins in a sense um, and it's also noticeable you know that like because this is something that is just true I think for many 
Black people with horror films anyway, and just culturally, that Black people are very superstitious people. There was this tweet earlier today that said something like, if you say Candyman five times, <laughs> then you will unlock the trailer on this, on, you know, this website or whatever. And there were so many tweets from Black people being like, I'll never find out. <laughs> I'll never say that. <laughs> and so one of the things that also begins to sort of happen in this film is that like, you know, Brianna doesn't want to hear about it. Like, they're very actually scared of these stories, which I think is actually, like, quite accurate. This is a true response for Black people about the film itself. <laughs> it's just like, you know, I'd actually rather not engage with it too much. Um, but there is a sense that, you know, these are stories that are hard to hear, right? Like, you know, um, ultimately, at the beginning of the film, actually, like, her brother, who's played by Nathan Jarrett Bradley. Is that the actors yes from misfits cool. i know that's what i was getting ready to say i love him i screamed when he he's great <laughs> he's incredible so he's playing brianna's brother and he tells in the story at the beginning of the film mm-hmm. uh which is really the 1992 version he tells him the story mm-hmm. of helen lyle and uh yeah you know brianna doesn't want to hear about it but anthony is quite intrigued and i think he ends up being drawn back to the sort of remnants you know of cabrini green the last sort of and Cabrini Green itself is, you know, actually emerges as a kind of ghost figure. Um, mm. But, you know, he is drawn back to, to um, you know, what buildings are left um, somewhat cynically in search of, I think, a bit of fame, a bit of recognition. Um, but also, I think there is something about the story that intrigues him that probably he senses has to do with, you know, learning about himself, getting closer to himself. So. Um, that's where we begin the film. I mean, he's he's kind of not directly replicating Helen's steps, but he there are echoes or parallels with the original film where he's kind of you know with his camera, he is com- he's like you know this artist who is looking at other people's work and and the situation and the the remnants of Karini Green, like you say, and taking pictures, essentially trying to glean some of those stories and repurpose them for his own art through his own perspective. Right. Um which obviously is a has a completely different layer of connotations than when Helen does it in the film. But I also really enjoyed the way that um Brianna's brother, whose name now escapes me, played by Na- by Nathan, kind of retells the story of essentially the Candyman film, but it's already quite different from the story that we that we see in the film. It's already kind of um, changed because of years of retelling, and it's become this urban legend of 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 especially the ending of the film. And yeah, you know, I mean, again, this film has been out for twenty years, but essentially, it's retold as Helen kidnapping a baby from one of the residents of Cabrini Green and trying to burn it alive in this pier. Yeah. Um, and instead, the mob saves the baby and burns Helen, mm-hmm. and apparently the ghost of her will forever be haunting cabrini green um but i do find it interesting like how how do you think kind of the the urban legend of Candyman, and i guess by extension of helen exists within the the new film Candyman? well i think you just hit the nail on the head right you know we're we ourselves know what happened um and we know you know on two levels both 
that there are certain things that just wouldn't be believed, right? There are certain things that wouldn't be translated. Also, depending on how you read that first film, either Helen herself is possessed by Candyman and is sort of doing some of these things that, you know, she she kills her best friend, she steals the baby, or Candyman himself has done it and she is, you know, trying to correct them. But I think also, you know, one of the other things that sort of, that is is becoming quite apparent is that like DaCosta is clearly aware this will be a theme later or at least for me in my response to the film is clearly aware of certain discourses around this film right so and and I think that works in certain in certain situations in certain moments and and this is one of those moments where it is very difficult it would be very difficult to believe for a community that has been you know, essentially discarded, right, and sort of left to um, its own devices and, and impoverishment. I don't know how many people now would be aware of, of Cabrini Green, but at the time, it was notorious for violence. You know, like there's rapes and, and gang killings, and, and, you know, that was how people sort of, um, that was the image that people um, had or, or was conjured up when people thought of Cabrini Green. Um and so, yeah, it would be hard for this community to, you know, it would not be realistic for this community to then tell a story in which this white woman is the savior. And so it fits and this, it, it works that, you know, not only has the story changed in part because there are certain things that are just unknowable and, and inaccessible, but also because it doesn't fit particular roles. This will also become a theme in this film that part of what storytelling is, is that, you know, it is familiar. And so people take on certain characteristics. They become certain. Yeah, they take on certain roles because that is how stories like this go. Um, And so it's really interesting that the film begins there. I mean, like, I think it's like a really wonderful scene as well, because it's, you know, uh, you know, back in the before times, which now I can't remember, <laughs> you know, if you're like at a friend's house, you know, you also begin to share certain stories like this, right? You know, you share your, your histories with people over a glass of wine, perhaps. Um, but, you know, what those histories are always going to be um, not tainted, but, you know, sort of mired by time, right? They're going to be slightly, they're going, they're going to change. Right. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And so there's something like really magical about these first mm-hmm. see these first early scenes in the way that it sort of positions and contextualized history, especially when we know that, you know, like I was saying, like, for a really for generations, the, this was how history was made mm-hmm. by black communities who were not allowed to write or, you know, have their histories written down, not just black communities as well, but indigenous mm-hmm. communities. So, um, yeah, I think it's really fascinating. And I'm keen to kind of talk a little bit about, before we go into full spoilers, about urban legends, because Mm -hmm. that's kind of ostensibly what Helen is exploring in the first film and kind of, again, part of the reason that Anthony kind of goes into Cabrini Green, into the remnants of it, to try to find out about that and that 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 urban legends but that's actually like the stories of the community that's not directly his it's also a community that he in a way like he is not infiltrating is not the right word it's mm-hmm. not the word that i'm looking for but that him and his uh he you know as the intel intelligentsia him and his girlfriend have moved in they are 
if a, a different kind of inhabitant of Cabrini Green yeah. than the traditional inhabitant of they're Cabrini middle class. Green. And I th- yeah, like they're they're bougie millennials. Like they <laughs> they do stick out. And one of the scenes that I kind of found very interesting about the film very early on in the film is when he finds this kind of well, he finds this sort of abandoned hole in the wall um one of these buildings and there's in a similar and a visual echo to the original film there's kind of a an orifice in a wall and it's mm-hmm. covered in graffiti and then he bumps into coleman domingo i know his character has a different name but he's always coleman domingo to me because yeah. like that man just oozes <laughs> charisma um Did you and- say your majesty <laughs> No, we got. I think there was a glitch in the recording. No, I just said he oozes charisma. So I'm like, oh, oh it's Coleman Domingo. Hello, oh, sir. But I um, heard like a rose art chest test. I heard your <laughs> majesty because that's who he is for me. <laughs> I got it. Sorry. <laughs> I'll take it. I think that also tracks. That also applies. But he like he starts telling the story of the candy man and we see it and it's actually the fir- the very first scene of the film but it's kind of out of context so we don't really get it and and someone emerges and we see these familiar this familiar iconography right the coat um the the coat. urban legend of the candy with the razor blade in it which was a really famous kind of urban legend i think mostly in the states because of mm-hmm. halloween and stuff like that yeah. um the hook of candyman and we, I don't know, I don't know about you. I fully expected it to be Tony Todd, and and then it someone wasn't. else emerges, and it wasn't. <laughs> I was like, oh wait, who is this other Candyman? And like, I I wonder kind of what do you think about the way that the urban urban legends kind of are conflated in the film, both the cinematic ones that we have because of the film, and the kind of the razor blade and the candy man and in the candy thing, as well as this kind of figure of, I guess, stranger danger of like this menacing figure who is there trying to seduce and perhaps hurt children specifically. Yeah, I mean, to, to, you know, I remember being told about like razor blades in the candy. Really? It was, yeah, it was like, I think it was also like razor blades and apples at one point. Um, yes. But yeah, I think it's so like, so two things here. <laughs> like, you've given me a lot. Like, that's actually quite like all of these connections that you're making are like, really interesting. And I hadn't thought about them before. But um, one of the things that, you know, when we're talking about storytelling and and also art making this will be very urgent uh but it'll be very you know pertinent with coleman domingo's character is that you know he is a storyteller and Mm -hmm. so you know this is it it's very clear from the first moment that you meet him like you know he's coming to anthony with a story um and so there are for his stories, right? Like there will be different players. <laughs> there will be different actors. So that is happening and we don't know that yet. But, you know, also because urban legends, uh, I think it's, it is interesting and a, a really incredible choice to not make it Tony Todd, right? You know, for various reasons. First of all, you want the people to stay to see if Tony Todd is going to show up, but also because, you know, that is how urban legends work, right? Like almost everything is recycled. Nothing is, is really new. And all of these, you know, I, if, if, you know, this character played by Coleman Domingo, I think his name is William Burke. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this, he's a kid, I believe it's like the seventies or the eighties is what it looks like. Um, and then, you know, 
you're talking about um you're connecting that story to the story of helen lyle who steals children right like you know these characters you know the the players may change but the essential scaffolding of the story stays the same which is that you know we want to protect our children from outside forces now that is interesting again for two reasons one that you know now we know we're in an era where we're well aware that actually the people who are most likely to endanger children are the people who are their caretakers who are very close to them they're not from the outside community but it's also really interesting for again you know this community of of black people that you know how many you you have such a you can sense such a fear of of losing your children and the different ways that that comes out you know in one story it is the is the tale of this man who like sort of hands out candy and has a hook for a hand and he turns out to be a, a real guy who is well-meaning he's mute um and he perhaps has some mental disabilities but he is later gunned down by police right police who we know are probably not really that concerned about the protection of that community um but you also have um you know already the film is sort of setting up this really i think interesting way of, of thinking about um, how stories can also be sort of protective um, and how the many functions that a story takes on, right? Like they're not just about, you know, they're about preserving history, right? But they're also about, you know, protecting and, and cautioning um, people to behave in a certain way. Um, and so basically what we're beginning to see is this sort of like really interesting tapestry of how stories become culture and how they begin to sort of bind communities together. I think that's um really great and but obviously you know it's a really harrowing scene as well because the film also starts here to sort of and the truth is that you can't really get away from this to be black is to be uh inherently political it is a it is a politicized identity so um you can't mm -hmm. get away from this anyway but you also begin to see the film the it's it's overtures of like uh you know political um uh you know, the way that it's sort of thinking about things that have been ongoing, but are also quite contemporaneous. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. And this might be, this might sound strange kind of as a follow up to that point, but mm -hmm. I think they connect as well based on, on everything you've spoken about before, about the kind of the, the way that Candyman, um, both of the Candymans kind of have their specific place in horror history and especially in the history of black horror mm -hmm. and about Jordan Peele and Nia Costa's own um, trajectory as a director. But what do you make of the actual horror of this Candyman and how it deploys kind of the um, the imagery of horror for scares that um, don't necessarily feel like scares? They feel... Mm -hmm more assaulting than jump scares <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean the thing is, is between you and me i think we've had these conversations before i'm not a good barometer for what is scary to people generally <laughs> because neither am i kelly yeah <laughs> i don't think i'm good at it I don't, I just, because i find that you know a lot of people found get out and us to be scary films and i didn't think they were really scary at all um since we're talking about jordan peele but i think that the violence is quite interesting in this because for the most part it is obscured in some way i think there's a real emphasis on blood which makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. because the Candyman series you know 
I don't really want to talk about those sequels. I don't have a lot for them. But it is a franchise or a series that is organized around lineage and blood and fraught histories. So um, it's a very genealogical affair. Um, So that makes sense. But, you know, they there's they're also generally like they take place at a distance. Right. Um, They do tend to be like quite interesting um, moments, the murder scenes. And another thing is that almost all of the victims, almost everyone who dies is white. And I think mm-hmm. that is part of, you know, the course correction that DaCosta is taking here, right? Because one of the criticisms of the 1992 Candyman, one that I, you know, I'm among these critics, is that he seemed to terrorize mainly black women. Um, most of the people who died, I mean, this would change, I guess, like over the course of all of the films. So we're talking about the original, which this film is mainly connected to, you know, the people who most suffered are, you know, he haunts Cabrini Green. So he is terrorizing the black tenants. There is like at the beginning of the 1992 version of a, a white babysitter that he kills, you know, but for the most part, that film is quite, it's a, he has a weird modus operandi, right? Like a weird MO, like uh, because he has been lynched, you would sort of think that he would terrorize mainly white people, but he doesn't. Hmm. Um, and in this film, I think that it's, you know, those scenes are quite interestingly, and this is what I mean. Like, I think that's right. Like that's a flourish that I think I would argue has to be DaCosta's, right? I mean, like she's mm-hmm. the person who staged this. So it looks very much like, that violence is, uh, it, you're, my speculation is that we are watching this from the perspective of like, from the vantage, I should say, of black communities, right? So this violence is at a distance. And it also, in a way, almost becomes protective, right? So because we're thinking about, because he becomes, uh, you know, not just um, an icon of a particular racialized violence, but he is also sort of a kind of, you know, king or like, like he, like he is very emblematic of this space. Like he is a kind of uh, defender of Cabrini Green that Mm -hmm. this within, you know, DaCosta's film, all of this violence, it is interesting that the violence occurs so remotely that it isn't like, in your face like it isn't very like you know visceral i think that's like a really interesting choice Mm. um and and it's it's difficult to talk about those scenes in particular without going into spoiler territory um so i'm keen to do that but before we move on (laughs) i did want to ask you something kind of that's quite specific and to be honest it's been used a lot in the marketing campaign so Mm -hmm. i don't think it's a spoiler um and i and i wanted to ask you kind of what do you think is the is the way that the film, but also the way that the film is being talked about, what is the power in the name of Candyman? Because they're using this whole thing as, you know, it's it's very much kind of Candyman itself, himself is in a weird way an amalgamation of several urban legends that we're all probably familiar with. You know, mm-hmm. you say his name five times in the mirror and he will appear and slaughter you. Um, and that's been used very much in the campaign, like you yes. referenced before. <laughs> So, I think also um, in the trailer they used uh, Destiny's Child say my name. Yes, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> fucking brilliant. And, uh, and say say his name or say my name is like very much a, a slogan of the film. And mm-hmm. and I think it 
operates on several levels. Um, yeah. Some of them very, very good marketing, and but in a way also kind of not just a call to action, but kind of a, a warning sign for audiences as well. I don't know. What do you make of the of the power of Candyman's name? Well, this is something I tried to get at a little bit in my sight and sound article. I couldn't get into it too much because I was like embargoed within an inch of my life. Shout out to Universal, but I, I appreciate you. But I, you know, I couldn't talk too much about it. I think that is obviously, you know, um, for good reason, right? Like you, I, I don't want to give too much away for people who, you know, haven't yet seen the film, but um, it is, you know, part and parcel of what we're already talking about, you know, when we think about the power of, of storytelling. Um, there's also a real, you know, religious element to it, right? So in part, you know, what's happening when you re- in, incite or you recite somebody's name is that you're invoking them and he does become a kind of hollowed figure. And I think the way that, you know, a lot of black audiences <laughs> feel about it is, is you know, it, it's not just an urban legend, but there is something quite, if not quite sacred about it, then there is something, you know, there's a reverence there. There's a kind of respect there. So, you know, going back to what we were just talking about, it does make sense within the context of DaCosta's film that a lot of Black people don't want to say the name Candyman because there is such a religious and, um, or, you know, a, such a spiritual um, dimension to, first of all, storytelling in general, but in particular this story and given like that specific history that is being invoked. So it does make sense that, you know, a lot of the white people who die because they have you know, recited his name five times in the mirror have done so because it does not frighten them. It has, it doesn't have the same, you know, weight or the same meaning. Um, We mentioned this before when we talked about the skeleton key actually (laughs) Um, is, you know, that character, (laughs) Caroline is played by Kate Hudson um, had no (laughs) respect, right? Like she (laughs) did a lot of, you know, this is becoming a theme, right? (laughs) Like, you know, white people who infiltrate or enter into communities and meddle with histories and, and traditions that make no sense to them. And they don't mm-hmm. have the same sort of reverence for it. Um, and so it is quite interesting that, you know, I, I do think that's like a, in most instances, like a pretty smart marketing move. Um, but I would also say that I do have really complicated feelings about the way that saying is deployed thematically within this film because there are certain contemporaneous political um telegraphing that is happening here it's there's there are a lot of parallels that are being made and i not very subtly and i think that probably the same you know they would achieve the same thing with more subtlety it could be a little less literal for me personally um but i am interested to see how that is received by a lot of people because you know the say so just to be clear you know say my name is also um very has become you know within recent years um part of the activism galvanized Mm -hmm. around um state violence and the murder of of various black people and it is because you know originally like these names are not these names are so they're so plentiful there's so many names that they mm-hmm. end up being forgotten and you know sort of 
not discarded, but you know, they disappear, right? Like that's, that's another really quite, I think, um, effective part of, of, you know, how their, how storytelling is, is being contextualized mm. within the film is that, you know, once you stop telling a story, right? Once you stop saying someone's name in a way that story dies and that person mm. dies a second time. Um, so yeah, I guess all that to say, you know, once we start to talk about the film, <laughs> spoilers, we can get more in depth about it. But I do think, you know, those, that political, um, I, I know that I keep saying this because on the one hand, it's really not that political. It should just be a standard, right? Like we're essentially what this film is doing is, is very much, you know, using horror and the experience of, of black communities in America to also emphasize a kind of ongoing trauma. And that is really, Mm -hmm. you know, that's also part of Jordan Peele's project. Um, that is what he has done in us and get out. And I think black horror in general, or in the, when I say black horror, I do mean horror that is authored as well as stars, black people, um, Mm -hmm. has endeavored to do this. Um, but I do think that there are ways that it has been gone about more cynically so Mm. you know the amazon series them and lovecraft Mm -hmm. country these are pictures that are quite i think very attuned to the violence of racism Mm -hmm. and less concerned about you know the spiritual slash psychological toll of it and i Mm -hmm. do think that that it's also part of an awareness that DaCosta has of you know discourses around film and she does, I think, you know, part of what's also happening with the obscured violence in this film is that there is much more attention to this sort of spiritual racial dismay um, mm-hmm. as opposed to just, you know, the viscera of it. Right. So, yeah, we'll discuss it more in the spoiler section in a minute. But um, what I think we're both kind of what I was getting at with my question and what mm-hmm. you were what you were describing is that the, the violence here in this film the horror in this film is feels very assaulting again weird word but it's eerie because i think Mm -hmm. it's seeped in um some esoteric powers and kind of powers of of conjuring um a power that's kind of not just from beyond the grave which seems too literal it's more of a supernatural collective Mm. being that holds power because of because it because he holds power in the community because he's remembered and because he's conjured and given power through his name and through the the story of Candyman. and i thought it was really interesting that you mentioned that you know remembering the name kind of means remembering the person but even even the legend of Candyman, um, even the name Candyman is still a moniker and it's mm-hmm. kind of a painful moniker for yeah. the man who is Daniel Robitaille. You know, we've yeah. kind of referenced him as being the, say, OG Candyman. Definitely, it's Tony Todd's character. It's the the real life man who um, was lynched and tortured and who became the legend Candyman. So I, I do think like even the the remembering of him as Candyman carries in itself a weight of pain that he yeah. has been, his name has been taken away from him and transformed into this monstrous supernatural Avenger and and killer who actually is kind of a tragic romantic hero 
if you focus only on the on the story of the man and that's kind of in a way is the nature of of urban legends as well right and we of how we transform and and stories as we retell them and what we consider to be the scary boogeyman and how that changes over years the idea of another candy man in the 80s being a say a, a someone who's targeting children or the idea of a stranger who will just appear and seduce and take children away is very specific to a particular um to a particular time as well yeah. like when that became a moral panic is very um it's very very kind of concrete yeah. um so it also tells us a lot about the the particular fears of of a of a society in a moment in time mm-hmm. um and that's called kind of a roundabout way to start leading us into the spoiler territory. <laughs> but Kelly, is there anything you want to mention be- for anyone who's not yet seen the film before we go in to discuss it in in gory detail? No, I think that's it. I mean, I think it is, you know, for people who are going to stop listening here, uh, do return after you've seen the, the film. I do think it's like really worthwhile. I, I would say that, you know, it is i mentioned like you know certain other films like this has also happened with like antebellum like there's a lot of stuff out there that's just not good and that really i think cynically traffics in certain tropes and um i would say that this film is very distinct from that even though i do have some some reservations about it um it is it's such a well-made film like it's really really good i i think it's a like you were saying like you know um it does the original real justice. It's a wonderful companion piece. So yeah, go see it. Go see it. Nia DaCosta's Candyman. <laughs> so, so Nia DaCosta's Candyman is out in UK cinemas <laughs> from now, from Friday, the 27th of August. Um, it's a great summer for horror. Yeah. Um, and from <laughs> this point onwards, we're going to discuss all spoilers for Nia DaCosta's Candyman. So once you've seen the film, (laughs) return to this part of the episode. (laughs) If you're out here looking for Candyman, you ask me, stay away. I feel really connected to this story. God. Right here in this neighborhood, the legend started. Uh Uh-huh. And the legend is... If we say his name five times while looking in the mirror, we could summon him. Summon the Candyman. Hell no. Candyman. Anthony, no. Candyman. Stop. I don't want to get creeped out in my new apartment before bed. Black people don't need to be summoning. Don't. I dare you. Don't say that. Say his name. Candyman. You better not do that last one. Candyman. Candyman. You want to be a part of the story, right? No. Say his name. Candyman. I think the best possible question now that we can kind of completely freely talk about the film is how does it connect to the 1992 Candyman? And I mean, like, let's go specific. How does yes. Anthony McCoy connect <laughs> to the 1992 Candyman? Well, Anthony McCoy is the very baby that Helen Lyle stole. <laughs> He's the baby. <laughs> he is baby. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's like, I mean, first of all, 
annoyed at myself because I was like, how did I not see this coming? <laughs> did you was in the trailer? I I did not. Oh, I didn't watch the trailers because the trailers. Oh, it wasn't the trailer. <laughs> Why did they do that? Oh, oh, but also, you know, know, I saw this before there was a trailer. Sorry, oh, I giving- see. <laughs> so I didn't know. <laughs> But yeah, so Anthony Anthony turns out to be um, the baby that Helen stole from um, the character who's played by Angela. Will- no, sorry, Vanessa L. Williams, right? Is mm-hmm. that her name? Mm-hmm. A. Williams, yep, yep. actually. Yeah, she reprises her role. Yeah. So you know, it turns out <laughs> that he actually does belong to, in a way, Cabrini Green, that he's not, you know, infiltrating at all, but that he is returning to his roots, literally, Mm -hmm. like, you know, um, but yeah, it's really, um, I think it's such an interesting reveal because you have these sort of, uh, you know, Brianna keeps mentioning, like, your mother wants you to come see her, like, go see your mother, and he doesn't go until he Mm -hmm. has been, you know, almost completely possessed by Candyman, and this possession is turning into a physical transformation as well yes uh all of my people out there who like i do have that i think it's called like typophobia triophobia like you're afraid of little small holes clustered together oh yeah yep yep trigger warning that's what i should have said at the beginning <laughs> so maybe we'll go back and add that but a trigger warning for my people who are afraid of tiny holes clustered together uh it's not fun it's not an there ideal. are a lot of them there are a lot of them on on poor um, baby Anthony. I know. You mean like it's it's also I should say like how egregious to take Yahya Abdul Batin II, <laughs> really like just a wonderfully fine man, like really beautiful. <laughs> I'm saying like uh, and Listen. turn him into this. <laughs> Okay, I have some, I have some thoughts on this actually. I okay. quite liked it um, because, fortunately, I don't suffer from that particular phobia. Uh, but <laughs> it is it is it is gross um, to see. It's like a terrible, weird rash, like he's turning into a living beehive in a way. Yes. And aside, like we can get into the connection between the OG Candyman, like the figure and uh, Yaya's Candyman as he like physically transform into physically seems to transform into him or be kind of possessed by him. But I actually thought it was really interesting to see to essentially like someone who's as like as physically beautiful <laughs> as Yahya Abdul-Mateen II and kind of chip away at that. I'm like, you know what? I I kind of like what you're doing here, Nia da Costa, because you're kind of, you're given this like leading man and you're kind of breaking him down both physically and psychologically. His character, I mean, yeah. like you're kind of chipping away at not his likability, but the fact that you're like, we're being forced to watch him disintegrate. Right. Um like as a person and also physically and he can't quite he definitely can't control it but he also like doesn't do anything to stop it he kind of just lets it fester well i think he's helpless to it right i think that's so important like the i mean like you're absolutely right like part of also you know this um he's watching his transformation um, in real time, but also in a mirror. And, and the space, the locus of, of Candyman's heart is in the mirror, right? This makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense because, you know, part of what that, the, the, you know, 
the stories that are being told by black people are also stories that rescue other black people, right? We keep we keep talking about that, you know, how telling stories and and saying names begins to preserve a, a history. Um because in the hands of the other, and this is why Helen is such a threat in the first film, you know, those images can become monstrous. They often do tend to become monstrous and grotesque. And so Candyman is a kind of monster of, you know, the white imagination, right? Like he, his death is, is, um, comes about because he's lynched after he has fathered a child with a white woman that he's fallen mm-hmm. in love with. Um, and so they turn him into, you know, this sort of, this figure by, you know, I think it's like they slather him in honey and, and, mm. you know, they, bees come at him because they're in like, um, I can't remember what that thing is called, but it's like a topiary or something like that. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it is interesting to, to, and that, that's very much part and par- parcel of, I think, a black, specifically a, a black American horror tradition where mm-hmm. mirrors become this really, um, because we've seen it in, uh, this is true as well of, um, us and uh also get out i know i keep mentioning those but like those are (laughs) the you know these are quite like significant horror films it's true um in um you know eve's bayou where the mirror is sort of reclaimed and and is turned into a healing space but you know for the most part the mirror is a really fraught sight for a lot of black people in horror films and as we were saying earlier you know i would consider the skeleton key which we've also talked about i would consider that part of this tradition like it's a it's a place where you know your identity doesn't belong to you um Mm -hmm. and that you can you know either internalize a gaze that is not your own um or you know be so so tormented by it that it begins to you know change the way that you see yourself um Mm. and so i think yeah it is interesting that like you know you would take somebody like it is very good casting on her part but i'm upset nonetheless i think (laughs) that like i would have (laughs) preferred something else but thank you nia i guess guess. um but like we it's interesting we've we've spoken a lot about um the Candymans, but we've barely spoken about brianna who kind of part of the misdirect of this film is that while we're so focused on anthony and yaya and his physical transformation and whether or not he is doing all the murders or whether it's tony todd's Candyman, actually the real protagonist of the film is his girlfriend brianna um and so what do you make and and one thing that I found really interesting is that she's also kind of being gaslit by several or attempted to be gaslit by several characters in the film, oh Very, goodness. which is a massive theme in um, in the original Candyman, but obviously has is completely differently played out here. Yeah. Um, so what do you make about Brianna in, in Candyman and her being actually the real, the real lead? She's the real hero in a way. Um, first of all, Brianna is played by Tiana Paris who is an incredible actress and has long deserved a leading role of her own. Um, I guess most people will now know her from 
oh, what's the series? What's like the Disney oh, series? Oh, One Division. Yeah. So people will probably know her for, from that. But she's also in um, the film Dear White People by Justin Simeon. She was in Chirac by Spike Lee. Like she's really incredible. Um, I have, I, I know why she hasn't broken through yet, but you know, she's, she's very good at, at what she does. And, um, she's also like really insanely charismatic, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Brianna in this film is a quite, like, it's almost, it's really quiet. I think I didn't even realize that she was, even on my first watch, you know, it was only until I like recently rewatched that I was like, oh, well, yeah, like actually she is so much more significant to the film you know, than that I previously thought. She also has like a really, you know, noticeably like all of the principal characters, I should say the three principal characters as played by mm-hmm. Coleman Domingo, Yaya, and Brianna have all had these childhood brushes with death. So she witnesses her artist father um, kill himself when she's a little girl. And so mm-hmm. in a way, she's also kind of doomed to survive these men. Um, and this is where we begin to get into actually certain, you know, issues that I have with the film. And, I, and I'm actually still sort of figuring it out um, how I feel about this. I, I haven't really decided, although I need to decide soon because my review is also too, um, <laughs> that, you know, in a way that the position she plays, you know, if we're talking about how, you know, how storytelling is most enduring when it's familiar when people play certain roles that ultimately Brianna who gets called a witness by Coleman Domingo's character later does tend to fall into that category a lot within the actual diegesis of the film and in some ways because of the film's sort of overt political message um and in kind of a helpless way right like I'm not saying DaCosta should be expected to uh, account for all scenarios right but that she does end up being a character that ends up sort of like you know echoing this presumption that black women are not as subject or as vulnerable to state violence which is not true and so I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about that <laughs> exactly um but I do think you know one of the beautiful things and certainly one of the things that's quite quite clearly about DaCosta herself um, or a stylistic thing that she's sort of bringing to this film is that we don't just empathize with Brianna because, you know, she is, um, you know, her boyfriend is first of all lying to her and not telling her (laughs) certain things that are happening with him. Um, And it's, you know, there are moments where as an art uh, curator, she is sort of professionally undermined as well or condescended mm-hmm. to or patronized. And so there are moments like that. But it's also because there are like, I think, significant moments where her witnessing of it, right? Like there's so much um, attention to her kind of spectatorship and, and what she sees that feels like quite, I think, um, very pertinent, right? Like it feels like the, you know, this attention to black women looking is really um especially i think not not a preoccupation but but tends to pop up a lot obviously in films by black women and how you know potentially empowering that site is how how empowering it can be to sort of not just you know as bell hooks would say like have an oppositional gaze but because you know black women are sort of themselves tend to be 
within, you know, the genre sidelined. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting to sort of, I think, make the character of Brianna not just, I guess we can say now, you know, the survivor, you know, the final girl of it all, um, but also somebody who in her role as a witness becomes, you know, perhaps most central to the story. I mean, she's the person who preserves this tale, right? Like she's the, per- like at the end, we're skipping a little bit ahead, but mm. Tony Todd comes in and turns around and tells her, you know, tell everyone. So I think that yes. is like, you know, we, this is really the moment that sort of cements this story as hers, right? And I, I do think that is such a, you know, but if we're thinking about like patterns among black women filmmakers, that it makes sense to me that she would occupy this role. But I do have, you know, mm-hmm. obviously like really conflicted, conflicting <laughs> feelings about it. I did find it really interesting that she, um, and obviously I realized this only after finishing, finishing the film is that she is kind of trying to rewrite her own story or rewrite it in a way that serves, especially kind of her professional ambitions or her mm-hmm. kind of social ambitions. Um, but and, and several times during the film, kind of people try to keep pulling her into like more sensationalist narratives like oh yeah the thing that happened with your dad which is a huge personal trauma you know her relationship with Anthony is like oh you know is this this thing this relationship your boy toy not your partner not your boyfriend like this artist that you like picked up and that's your entertainment for right now Mm -hmm. um which feels very dismissive of their relationship and then all the violence that starts happening because the first murder, uh, the first murder in Candyman happens in her gallery and uh, yeah. Candyman kind of brutally murders her, um, I guess, art dealer and his intern who, yes, he's also sleeping with. Very, yeah. very <laughs> creepy, very fucking weird. But the murder is great. Um, <laughs> but obviously then it kind of all falls into her. So she's like trying to navigate all of these quite violent stories that are happening around her or that exist in her past. Mm-hmm. And p- other people are dragging it in and they're so many scenes in the film where there's like very i think in teona's kind of performance like this very rapid fire not contemplating but like calibrating of how much do i indulge this and how much do i move away from it and continue with the story that i have devised for myself and that i want to tell of myself as a professional as a gallery owner as a gallery curator as a as a talent spotter so like there's a lot of her there's a lot of the art world scene as well very present through her and all those power dynamics as well and and i mean i i love kind of anything that pokes fun at the creative industries as well and i think (laughs) the art world does not really um go unscathed in this film (laughs) Yeah, what did funny. you make what did you make of the way that um that whole scene you know the the gallery owners the curators the artists the critics specifically there's another slaughtering of a critic which was beautiful is that weird to say <laughs> it was quite beautiful it's well shot it's well, it's well shot yeah it's yeah that's probably shot. better put considering that we're both critics it's yeah it's well shot it was well, not beautiful this is the thing. I I think like there are moments, you know, re uh, Brianna, she is clearly like, you know, a very 
you know, there's something about there's like extra, extra bougie, right? Like she speaks French and um, she's the, it's her house. And, you know, Anthony at one point says that, you know, my mom thinks that you're giving me money to stay away from me. <laughs> so it is interesting that, you know, she is this like very like, you know, I'm putting this in quotations, respectable black woman. And she's sort of surrounded by, she cannot really escape a legacy of horror, right? It's impossible to shield herself from, from these stories and from how often it spills into her life. Um, both her from her past and and obviously through her partner, but then you know <laughs> the thing about critics or the way that critics are often like positioned in these films is just so frustrating <laughs> to me. Not because I'm precious <laughs> about my own feelings, but because it's clear to me that artists, you know, authors, fil- filmmakers themselves reveal their own preciousness, right? And their own sort of um, vulnerabilities. So that exchange, the exchange between Anthony and the critic who's sort of like looking over his work is, you know, she's very dismissive of it. She's a, she is a white woman. Um, also, I think like that's really important. He's making a work that is like very deeply, you know, steeped in like racialized histories. And she's very dismissive of it. And I do think like, you know, it's quite, um, it's interesting because then later Brianna, you know, a black woman says of Anthony's work, you know, this is too literal. And I think that there are moments in the film that are also too literal. <laughs> this is one of them. <laughs> and right. Like there are certain moments where like, obviously the art world and, and you know, how, you know, those connections between how does one, as Anthony says, sort of, you know, calibrate tragedy, or I think he says something like the tragedy, tragedy into a focused lineage, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. all of these questions it's sort of bringing to the surface about how art works and, and its role as a, as, you know, documenting or archiving history or culture and, and, you know, certain painful histories and, and uh, dimensions of our culture. Um, you know, that I'm less, you know, I, I bristle at that less, but then there are other moments where it's like, I think William says something like Candyman is how we deal with all of these things and how, mm. you know, we're still dealing with it. I'm just like, but did we need that? I think that, <laughs> you know, audiences should be trusted to sort of make these connections on their own. And I think there are a lot of moments um, where the film and the screenplay doesn't seem to trust them. And so there's a lot of announcing of themes. Um, mm. And so I, I, do think it's interesting that like on on one level you have um this this really clear like um uh telegraphing of of you know and i think quite well done i would say you know how much storytelling and art making is really essential to particularly the preservation of black cultures black communities um and then on the other hand you have this way of where like, you know, it also, it feels to me that when you begin to articulate these things so often within the film that you do foreclose on a lot of interesting implications as well. So when William ends up saying something like that, it's just like, but you know, that's true. Candyman is that, but you know, and it's not that 
it still can't be this, right? It's it's not that it still can't have all of these rich implications, but it just does feel a little bit heavy handed. I do feel like I'm being guided a little bit. And I definitely felt like that with a lot of the art world scenes where it's just like, yeah, I really want you to think about how millennials like tap into our histories and our culture. And I was just like, I, I get it. So for me, I was not, <laughs> I was not as, um, you know, swayed by those scenes. And you meant we've mentioned William very briefly, but let's talk about William, played let's by the great, <laughs> by the majestic Coleman Domingo, but also specifically about the f- the fact that William literally Doctor Frankenstein's yes. um, Anthony into a millennial Candyman, like it's literally, terrible. he completely transforms <laughs> his body, cuts yeah. off his arm, yeah. um plonks a hook into it like gives him the tony todd coat like he literally creates out of him yeah well um, let's, give, let's give this little like you know blurb so william is actually a very deceptive character <laughs> we meet him we meet coleman domingo and we think oh it's coleman domingo like he's such a nice guy <laughs> i love him <laughs> And he lures us in, and actually, he's a little bit crazy. He, uh, so I when love he... Coleman Domingo. He's never played a nice guy. I'm always like, what's he up to? <laughs> oh, he's always that? gonna be deceptive. Oh, Anna, I'm revealing my own like <laughs> prejudices. Coleman Domingo is just like a really beautiful man to me as well. Like, I think he is uh, something about him. Something about him. It's a pink um, suit. Maybe it might be that. I mean, like in Zola as well. I was just like, oh, he seems so nice. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I knew that he wasn't, but I was just like, oh, how are they going to do this? Whatever. That's neither here nor there. Um, William Burke is a is a character who grew up in Cabrini Green, and and when he was younger, uh, he both witnessed the murder of Sherman. I think the man's real name was like Sherman Fields or something, but the Candyman Mm. that we we're talking about in the beginning the story that he tells um anthony of the guy who used to hand out candy and had a hook for a hand he was shot by police in part because william screamed and the police were waiting outside the building and so they sort of rush in and gun down this mm. man who you know dies tragically and then um later his sisters are in the bathroom you know summoning Candyman, and then he watches them die so William's a really like is a character who who holds like this really like it might be for some people too much. It does seem like oh he has like not just one tragic story but two. But actually, you know, I think he's a character who much more than any of the other characters is clearly very aware of how uh, crucial stories are. And he becomes, I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to point out in my review is that he's a kind of like, you know, griot figure. And so the griot is, um, you know, a kind of West African, like, um, sort of storyteller, like they're poets, they're sort of theater players, they sort of travel around and, and um, they tell stories, but they are also, you know, oral historians, right? And so this is the role that William inhabits within this film. And when it doesn't happen fast enough, or when he sees, you know, this sort of... I mean, you think about this as well. Like, this is a character who has watched his home be increasingly destroyed. Like, all evidence of his past is sort of being taken away. And uh, so, you know, 
I think you have the perfect recipe for somebody who feels like I need to take matters into my own hands. And yeah, he is a figure of a kind of like grotesque authorship, right? It's interesting because, you know, I was, I was mentioning the griot, but this final scene where he sort of transforms Anthony into, you know, where he Frankensteins him, as you put it, <laughs> he, this happens in a church. It happens in a mm-hmm. Christian church and there's a lot of Christian iconography around them. In fact, I think at one point, Yaya is sort of sitting in front of like a portrait or a painting of like, I think it's like, is it God and, and maybe Jesus? I, I'm not sure. I can't remember now, but he is like sort of sitting there. And so there is another sort of like Trinity happening, right? And it is interesting that, you know, the sort of transformation of the Griot figure, or at least dimensions of that figure in a diasporic mm-hmm. context have been preserved in the Black church. And so a pastor often occupies this role now as storyteller and historian. And I think like part of what, you know, is so wonderful about Domingo's performance, because, you know, as is his by now pattern, a scene stealer, like like, every time you see him on screen, like he's so great. And he does such a great line delivery of lines that I think are quite clunky, like the line we just talked about. Um, Mm -hmm. But is that you have him, you know, there, there's not really slippages, I suppose, of his, you know, possible dementedness earlier. Um, but there, but you do get already you a, a a a character who really sort of shines when he is telling stories, right? Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that he culminates or his role sort of culminates as this sort of puppeteer or this person who thinks of himself as like a great, like you know, in order to sort of like really um, bring about this rebirth. Um, mm-hmm that you know he imagines himself as not just a griot but as a kind of prophet and so there's certain ways that he i think speaks in the film that um you know going back having watched it like a second time like really makes sense to me first of all i think you like coleman domingo has like a really interesting cadence anyway like it's very raspy but also very melodic um and so he Mm. has like this sort of like almost grandiose ways of of speaking without like really trying very hard and so there's that moment that sequence where they're in the church you know his characteristic is very much like a preacher right which i think is very different from the way that he has been communicating with anthony before and so yeah i think like i mean obviously you also get like there are certain ticks that he does like while he's Mm -hmm. like um in the church that you like haven't witnessed before um but it's like really like such a you know (laughs) i think very very surprising twist (laughs) he's honestly i mean maybe not for some people maybe you're like anna you're just like when coleman domingo shows up i know it's about to be a problem (laughs) but i did not i would have like willingly gone with him i I happily join a cult where coleman domingo is uh (laughs) the leader (laughs) only if he's wearing the pink suit in my book but I did really love the way that 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 kind of twist of the film it was unexpected um although I always like distrust Coleman Domingo um <laughs> in his roles I've seen Zola twice I, like I'm not trusting that man he's too good <laughs> at telling stories 
never a trustworthy characteristic. Um, but the way that kind of he he that twist merges the physical. So the fact that Anthony has been like physically transforming into a, an even more grotesque Candyman than the legend presents him as. Yeah. And and the the supernatural kind of the embodiment of this of this urban legend who is also here a a protector of Cabrini Green, and and I was thinking kind of what do you make of the to go back to Tony Todd who we've mm-hmm. referenced uh, several times who does show up at the very last scene um, yeah. in the film the fact that, like what does Candyman become at the end? What becomes of Anthony? What becomes of Tony Todd? Like there seems to be this merge of the physical, so the living human being, Anthony McCoy, and the legend of Candyman, and also the real man of Candyman, da- uh, Daniel Robitaille, like played by, t- by a de-aged Tony Todd yeah. in the film. And I thought like a very beautiful Wait, way of bringing him into yeah, he's only DH. Come on, he's photoshopped to hell. No way. I think he Tony Todd yeah. looks good for his age. But go ahead. No, come on. <laughs> no, come on. He's in. He's like. He's pretty significant in. Um, like he ta- He appears a lot in horror noir, and like mm-hmm. he like the man has aged beautifully, but he has aged, <laughs> and he looks. He looks like just like in 1992. <laughs> okay. I mean, I think it's um, like that religious transformation, right? Like he sort of cements mm-hmm. himself as a religious figure, as a kind of holy figure. And that is often, you know, I mean, truthfully, that is how a lot of people become in death. But we should also say, you know, at the end of the film, um, after Anthony has been sort of maimed and, you know, so on, that he is killed by police who sort of mm. um, rush into the building thinking that they are, I mean, I don't know that they think that they're saving anybody, but they, you know, he rushes into the building and, and they shoot him while he's actually lying in Brianna's arms. Um, and of course he's been like, you know, before this, he's been suspected of committing the murders. Um, but, you know, one, and I do think that this actually, you know, works in, in a, in a really um, quite effective sense. You know, it's not just that, Anthony is somebody that because uh, Brianna is like sort of in a police car and she says his name five times and he kills all of the police. And um, so, again, we're seeing how Candyman becomes a kind of spiritual figure that can be evoked a really like a spectral mm-hmm. presence that can be evoked. But he also becomes really ancestral. Right. Like once he passes away, once he becomes dead, it becomes, you know, he becomes an ancestor. And I like that. Tony Todd is in the scene. I don't, I mean, I don't know that people will, maybe it, it, it will be quite, I, I just don't know that it's fan service. I, I don't know how it will be received, but I don't think it is. I think it makes sense that Tony Todd is there because you're sort of cementing this genealogical connection between these two characters and how they begin to represent a lasting violence right you know Candyman is lynched by i suppose extrajudiciously but quite a lot of times when black men were lynched historically um you know cops were part of these killings and cops are still part of these killings still part of these you know these lynchings but i you know it's it makes sense then to sort of turn this legend then into this lineage of you know, and it's a somber lineage of death. Um, 
But it is one that then becomes part of Rihanna's arc as well, right? Like he is not just, he's a, he's a character or a figure that she can call upon, but it also becomes her story, right? And she becomes mm. this, she becomes the rightful um, historian, the rightful storyteller, um, where William was sort of doing it for nefarious, selfish reasons. Um, she uh, is called to sort of witness and, and, and carry on this um, tradition of, of preserving history this way. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's like, I, I wonder how you think about how, how you feel about that scene or the entire conclusion. As a, as I was listening to you speak over this past hour, I was rethinking the film and, and kind of half looking at my notes from, from the screening. Mm -hmm. And what I found really interesting about that final scene and about the, the reinterpretation of Candyman as an, uh, as an avenging urban legend, really, as an ancestor who is there uh, in this film is a protector of his community or, you know, the, the legacy of his community and those stories is that when Brianna invokes him and it seems like a last resort for her because she's literally handcuffed and put in the, in the back of a police car. And she's essentially being told again, this is the very literal um, political nods that I think is some of the things that you were referring to earlier mm -hmm. for literally the, the white police officers, like which story do you want? The one that yeah. I'm going to tell or are you going to collaborate with me and we tell the same story together? Neither one of those options actually benefit Brianna. Neither one of those options are the truth of what yeah. happened. And so she kind of reluctantly invokes Candyman. And to me, it felt like a like a, a dangerous act because so far, everyone who's invoked Candyman gets murdered by him. Mm. Um, and not not only just the white characters in this film, because remember the 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 older sisters of of William when he was younger as well. Those yeah. were innocent teenagers. Yeah, and so I'm like, oh fuck, is she is she, is she now able to essentially is now Candyman transformed into a figure that can be invoked by yeah the the members of the community the members of cabrini green as someone who is there to protect them as opposed to murder them um or like is candyman now become a a tool a supernatural tool to fight against um i don't know i don't even know against what this is kind of like the open question for me like what is candyman transformed into because of this merging with anthony is it the spirit of anthony that is like keen to protect his his partner and that's why he kills the police as opposed to her yeah like is it because she also has the role of the witness which is also supernatural um like there's i i like the fact that it's open-ended i like the fact that you can like bring in very i think you can bring in like several different readings to it some of them quite literal some of them kind of more esoteric and more yeah. ethereal perhaps even romantic um but i do think it's like a very different deployment of Candyman in that final scene um, than anything we'd seen previously in this film and in the 1992 one as well. Because here he is, he's killing everyone except the person who invoked him. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's interesting, right, that he, yeah, you do have this demarcation between the Tony Todd Candyman and Anthony's Candyman, who seems to be a much more avenging figure. Mm. Um, 
and I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure how to parse that because I think um, one of the things that is happening in this film, right, is that we see different Candyman's. Like he isn't mm-hmm. really a person at all, and perhaps never was. But yeah, not that he literally like the within obviously Daniel Robitaille um, exists, and you know all of these sort of supernatural happenings exist, but. You know, I think perhaps he always just was symbolic and that what is actually, you know, what he actually brings is a kind of knowledge that, you know, what you say is happening to you is happening to you. So it's important to have that, you know, this last scene with the police in which he sort of gives Brianna these two false stories that she can either, you know, um, co-sign or not. And that when Anthony returns, he says something like, I can't remember the exact dialogue, but he's just like, you will say that, you know, I'm evil or like that I'm a villain Mm. or, you know, all of this stuff Um, that, you know, you do really think of like this figure as sort of embodying all of the horror of lynching and and the, you know, um, extrajudicial and also state violence against black people um, for centuries in America. Um, but that also, you know, it makes more sense that he, that he should operate in this way here. And that at the same time as Nia DaCosta is sort of connecting herself or situating herself within this lineage, that she is also course correcting a lot. And I think that was really apparent to me while watching this film, that so much of this film is quite a a lot about, you know, reclaiming or like rescuing the story, the legend of Candyman. Before we wrap up, Kelly, mm-hmm. um, is there anything that we that we haven't spoken about or touched upon in in Nia Costa's Candyman that you wanted to bring up? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I think like the performances are really, really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't do a lot of talking about you. We did a lot of talking about how good Yaya Abdul Mateen looked, or I did. <laughs> but you know, he's actually like he's a very good actor. I want to see him in more stuff. I think we will. Um, yes, he's an Emmy winner I, now. He is, and actually, <laughs> I think he's uh, in this role in particular, like quite a very um, empathetic actor. Mm-hmm. Like he he doesn't really fall into the torture tortured artist cliche i think there's something about anthony that's like really smart really self-aware not entirely devoid of ego which i quite like i mean he's an artist (laughs) after all so i think there's like elements of him um being kind of not not manipulative but like taking stuff that's interesting to him and transforming it into his work right uh that i think is very particular to artists and and it's always very i'm always very interested in seeing how that works like how do you how do you like pick bits from other people's lives and other people's stories? And of course, this is connected to him, um, so it gains another level. But I think there's an element there of kind of you know, magpieing um, mm-hmm. different people's lives and stories to create something new um, that I think is kind of both very complicated and sometimes not not necessarily um allowed um yeah. and as well by someone who like yaya who's so likable on screen mm. um he really navigates that this role like between someone who's dealing with a lot of um things from the past that kind of unfold through the film so dealing with that new information and also kind of very ambitious and in a really yeah. 
uncomfortable bougie position yeah and and being pressured in different ways like pressured by the art world by the critics he wants to impress people he wants his name out there the whole thing about the name it's also applies to anthony because there's a point when the first murder happens they mention the fact that it was done in front of his piece and he's so happy that yeah. they mentioned his name on the news <laughs> which i thought was a really lovely touch like it's those those things of ego yeah 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 i mean and i think also you know one of the real standouts as well is his scene with his mother is mm. like a really because she you know she's basically you know telling him the truth that she had for so long not told him you know he's not aware of his connection to um the candy man legend at all and you know that actress as well is really good. She um she has like a really illustrious TV career. Um, but within the original film, you know, she was given this really awful forced slang written mm. dialect that is clearly like not natural for her to speak in. And so her performance really suffered, but it was so good in this one. And obviously they use her, but they use like a wonderful moment where she's just like, shh, don't say it. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's a great it, moment in the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, "Don't say that." <laughs> and um, yeah, but that seems like my, you know, it, heartbreaking. I think you know one thing we also should mention is like the way that this scene, the way that the, the entire film is shot and staged, is mm. quite uh wonderful like it's a real like there are certain you know we're talking about like the enduring imagery of the first film i think that really continues um in this film as well like there's like uh, it's particularly the like you know interior shots as well like they're so gray and barren and there's something quite you know when once you move away from like the sort of bourgeoisie um you know redeveloped cabrini green you move into these spaces that is quite mm. you know sort of drained of color um and uh yeah i i think like yeah it's just like really clever really smart um stylistic choices um particularly like wait because there's like also like a lot of like standings there's like a lot of silhouettes like there there's uh you know a shot of um ya ya sort of standing outside and like this quite like this white boiler suit i think it is mm -hmm. um, yeah but yeah like yeah, you know there's like really haunting imagery like that that i think like is quite wonderful touch yes the way the way that nia costa kind of uses the the imagery of of Candyman just through glimpses so we never yeah. quite know it's very it clever direction very clever visual misdirection as well we never quite know whether the murders are being committed by a supernatural Candyman or by Yaya's real yeah. flesh and blood Candyman um same as the the original film was like playing around with whether was it Helen or was it Candyman or was it Helen being possessed by Candyman who was doing the actual murders right. and I think my favorite staging was perhaps the murder of the teenage girls in the bathroom because we yeah. don't actually we hear everything and I love when horror films use sound design to its most maximum effect because it's so potent we only see it through like glimpses through a little vanity mirror the compact mirror that ends up on the floor and through like just blood drops and and yeah. splatter everywhere from underneath a, a high school toilet and Can it's so effective yeah. it is really effective it's hugely effective but i just had like a trivial question like 
Is that the same bathroom from the craft? The new the craft? <laughs> did you think? Did you pick up on that? <laughs> I did think about that. I did think about it, especially because, like, I think one of the girls looked like one of the, the new girls from the new craft. Yeah. But I do not want to discuss the new, the new craft. <laughs> I refuse. That is not canon. I refuse to accept it as canon. It's this not, even not a fucking canon. <laughs> I've no. never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're right. Erased the- it from my memory. <laughs> Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that that all of the murder shots are like very interestingly staged. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and it has so many, I think, really rich implications. And I'm, I think the film actually really shines in these moments where we're not being told or directed uh, to toward what we should think or what we should make of all of the symbolism. And um, yeah, I really appreciate how I re- appreciate that remoteness. Um, not because I'm like, you know, antsy about gore or anything, but because I think that really does contribute to a kind of, you know, sort of mm-hmm. spectral death, right? Like it's not visceral. It's not, it is fleshly, but there is something about that, about it that's otherworldly and unreachable, mm-hmm. right? Like there's almost a kind of, these people are unrescuable because, and you can't see them. You can't see what it is. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I think a lot of really fascinating choices. I'm so interested to see what she does um after this next marvel film and i do hope that you know it's just i i really really hope that she has like a a, quite a long career um Mm. i'll be interested to see like what she does next um i hope she makes more horror films i do i can't wait to see what she does next i mean there are moments of little little woods where it's like quite like they're clearly like very gothic Mm -hmm. slash very horror oh yeah um, context so um yeah, I hope she does too. She's really like she said some interesting things about the film. So, uh, yeah, intriguing. So, um, <laughs> Dr. Kelly Weston, where can we find more of your work online? <laughs> well, you can find me on Twitter at Kelly with an I, Kelly K E L O I Weston. Um, and uh, yeah, you can find me writing for you know Reverse Shot, um, Science sound film comment um all those places and i just want to shout out your really really great feature about um candy man in the context of black horror in this month's sight and sound thank you which is really excellent so thank you kelly so much for your time and for your insight on nia da costa's candy man uh, I hope everybody goes and sees Nia DaCosta's Candyman. It's a fantastic film. Thank you for having me, Anna. Thank you for having me to talk about Nia DaCosta's Candyman. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think if we say Nia DaCosta, um, she'll pop up in the Zoom if we say I, it five times? <laughs> I, hope, I hope she does. I hope she does. I mean, like, I kind of am weirdly attached to this woman. She's, you know, made a very good film. <laughs> 